0: I am normally, for the last 20 years, I have primarily focused my creative practice on experimental film. Not really film actually, I get into video and animation. Um, But I was trained uh, traditionally as a printmaker. So this is really the first time in 20 years that I have done any substantial amount of hand printing. And I just wanna thank Asia for having the faith in me to let me do that. Also don't look too close at the prints because it's the first time in 20 years. Um, but in any case, um, so this artist talk uh, will focus mostly on how I've been thinking about print work, um, to some degree how it relates to my video work. But I'm not going to show any videos or show you any of my primary time-based um, projects. But um, Michael, I believe, where are you? You're planning a film jam on the 14th, right? Oh, yeah. And maybe one or two of my pieces will be part of that. So if you are interested uh, please come back then. Um, if you were here uh, before I pulled this image up there was a video playing um, that had a lot of the same text and some additional text that was similar to uh, the text on the prints here. So actually the video um, that was part of a piece called what's best part two a video called what's best part two and these prints came after the video so um, I also work with bookmaking, so I'm really interested in text as a visual thing, as well as a prompt. Um, and, and that has become part of my videos, and now it's moving back into the print world, so my practice is kind of shifting around somewhat, and in some ways going backward, and in some ways that's also going forward. Um, and I'm going to start with this work because this was my first, this, was, this is from about five years ago. It's the first time, um, I think it was the first time in 15 years, I made anything that resembled a print. And this was uh, a mass-produced um, offset print, which is the way they print news, newsprint, newspapers. So it was newsprint, it was not archival. Um, and this print, maybe some of you have seen this text before. Has anybody in here seen this text before? It sort of made the rounds on the internet for a while. Um, It kind of got away from me, it was my text originally and then sort of took on a life of its own. I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. But uh, this was, I mean, pretty obviously in response to the Make America Great thing that was happening with Trump at the time. Um, And it was really a thought experiment for me in terms of this idea of like, okay, so when was America great, at what point Like, at what point back in history could we go to make it great again? Mm -hmm. And as I thought about it, um, I really, I mean, an endless expanse of old growth forest, of course, stewarded by uh, Native people with no certain borders, actually wouldn't be America, right? So in a way, this poster is actually, the alternate name for this poster is Unmake America. Um, It's kind of an anarchist, there's an anarchist impulse behind it. And I really just wanted one for myself. I wanted to hang one on my wall, but the only way to get one printed on newsprint, and I really wanted ink on newsprint. I just had this material vision of this thing. I wanted one for my own wall, and the only way I could get one was to print 1,000 of them. It only cost 200 bucks to print 1,000 of them, because like they said, they are not archival, they're on newsprint. So I printed 1,000, but I only wanted one, and so I had 999 (laughs) I had to do something with. And I started just like, in a very disorganized way, just distributing them to anybody who wanted them. If someone said they wanted one, I would make them take 10. Um, And then they would kind of redistribute from there. And somebody gave one to a tiny um, independent bookshop in Bodenham, Maine, and they put it in their window. And somebody took a picture of it and put it on Twitter. I guess it was someone with a lot of followers, I don't know. And it started making the rounds all over the place. So it took on this life. this life of its own uh, and um, people started sending me pictures of it out in the world. And you can see someone here made an edit of it. Um, I think this person actually was, it was an interesting thing that happened because I don't think that apparently the anarchist impulse was a little too subtle for some people. So they would they would alter it to, <laughs> to sort of satisfy themselves um, that it was sufficiently anarchist. Um, but people would wheat paste it around because it's the kind of poster you can wheat paste. People started making drawings of it. They would show up, um, sometimes with my name, often without my name. Um, this is from, also I found this from a, a Swedish um, illustrator whose name I can't remember, who I don't know. Um, this, was, this is a band called The Drums. <laughs> they, their manager got in touch with me to ask me if they could project it behind them at the Coachella Music Festival. So this is a picture of them doing that. <laughs> And if you, if you uh, Google this now, this, <laughs> this is what comes up. So um, I, of course, never sold it and never made any money from it, ever. Um, I gave my extra copies to a friend who was also just starting a tiny independent bookstore and she distributed them through her bookstore for free. Uh, but then people started making, you can still buy posters, you can buy t-shirts Amazon sells them, um, it just kind of like left my hands. And uh, you know, people have redesigned it. Um, it has shown up in other, with other, other fonts and with pictures behind it. And in a way I love that, right? Like it makes me really happy. And in another way, when it was Amazon, I was really not so happy about that, right? I, you know, it's just kind of, it's just capitalism. Um, and I didn't really feel like I had any way to stop it. Uh, And so it just kind of did what it wanted to do. And it can, I mean, I think I Googled this yesterday. So this is still, you can still, if you want a t-shirt, you can go buy it from Amazon. (laughs) Um, So I have not reprinted that poster. Uh, It just was the original thousand thousand of them. I don't know, they're all over the place. Um, But it was a really interesting uh, experience, especially because I had not been making print work. I had not been making artist multiples in this sort of um, you know, it was a really interesting experience. And so it got me It got me thinking about um, the possibility of continuing to do this. And as you can see maybe from the text, like in a way it's a thought experiment. There is some ambiguity in it. I also found Reddit threads where people talked about how annoying this was because America is not just an old growth forest, it never was. There are, Plains and prairies and deserts, and I was like, yeah, okay, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, so when things get out into the public, like they, they are, you know, they're just looked at differently. It wasn't seen as sort of a poetic sort of thought experiment. It was seen as like a dumb statement. So, you know, to each their own. Um, but I was I as I was putting this, as I was putting this talk together, I was thinking about this tendency to avoid, um, to. Avoid to avoid being too specific in some ways, like I think about this as a whole room full of questions. I'm interested in questions, I'm interested in prompts, I'm not particularly interested in being uh, authoritative in my work. And I think that has some relationship to my early experience, professional experience in documentary making. So I worked in conventional documentary production for a while and um, I don't know I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but you might know people who watch one well made documentary about something and then, afterward, they talk as if they know everything about the subject, right? Um, and the problem with that is that documentary is an expressive form. Um, it's really, its relationship to the truth is very tenuous, but for some reason, culturally, we give it a lot of credibility. Um, In journalism, which is not the same as documentary, there are a lot of safeguards built into the process. Not that journalism is always true or whatever, but there are safeguards to make it truer, right? Like fact checking, the way sources are handled, all that kind of stuff. Documentary, you can do whatever you want. I mean, really, you can do whatever you want, but the way that it's presented makes us think that it's true, or some of us think that it's true. So, uh, in my own work, I'm much more of an experimental maker, but I'm still very interested in doing research in nonfiction, in understanding other stories, um, not necessarily in uh, making things up, um, at least not intentionally making things up. And, and I think my, my film and video work has really moved in the direction of prompting. So I do a lot of research about something, but then I will make a work that really is meant as just, as just a way to prompt an attentive viewer or an interested viewer to go find out more for themselves, right? so that I don't put myself in the position of being the person who knows exactly what the story is and can tell you exactly what the story is. Instead I kind of want to open the door for you to figure out what the story is. Um, and I think that tendency recurs in my work. Uh, over and over again, this sort of leaving space and asking the viewer to kind of step up and in some ways be part of the meaning making of the work, which is always true with all artwork, ever, anytime. time. But I think it's maybe a little bit more explicit and pointed in a lot of the work that I make. So, um, the next poster project I took on was really part of this project, which is, uh, which is a collective of people Uh, started by someone I work with, um, Federico Cuapacuado, who is this person right here, he uh, grew up until he was about seven in a small town in Mexico called Cuapa that is mostly an indigenous town, and half of the town is in the U.S. and they've migrated and almost all of them are here illegally. So there are about 2,500 people in Quapa and then like a diaspora of about 2,500 people in the U.S. and they mostly have stayed in a few small communities so they're still kind of together in the U.S. And uh, because they've migrated illegally, people don't go back and forth very often because if they come back, it's not clear that they can go back and forth. Um, So there's a lot of keeping in touch across the border. Uh, families who haven't seen each other for 30 years, but are still very closely in touch. Um, And a lot of times the generation that migrates um, is sort of the middle generation. So maybe young parents, they leave their children with the grandparents, they migrate to the US, they establish a life there. And when they're ready, the children are sent to the US, which is what happened to my colleague, who then got uh, DACA uh, status as a a young adult. And that's how he's made his life here. Oh, that that's complicated. I could talk more about that, but I won't bore you with Daca stories. In any case, he started a residency in his family home in Cuapa back in Mexico where he'd lived with his grandparents until he was seven and he came to the U.S. So he now has a little residency in his house in Cuapa. And this is the collective group of artists who have been down there and then come to the, that came, most of us, I think we're all, yeah, the people who are Mexican citizens only are not in this picture. This is all the U.S., US citizens or at least US residents in this picture. Um, But this poster in the background was my my contribution to this. And there are a couple of them over there on the windowsill. And this was the first double-sided poster that I made. And it had to do with really thinking um, thinking about the generational differences. So in Spanish, one side says what's best for the daughters, and one side says what's best for the grandmas. Um, and then a tiny little text down at the bottom. This says in English, "What's best for the daughters?" And this says in Nahuatl, which is the language, the indigenous language of Quapa, which a lot of the elders speak. Um, it says, "What's best for the grandma?" So really thinking about this question of like, um, well, even what is best, but also how what's best for one generation may actually be quite sad for another generation. A lot of the Um, young people who have migrated to the U.S. from Quapa, um, if they can come back because they get DACA status, they can't necessarily communicate super well with their elders because they don't speak the same language anymore. Um, And, I mean, I I think there's a lot of sadness around the offset, but there's also this sense that uh, Mm -hmm. it was something that was necessary because the traditional brick-making, the way people made money in that town was to make bricks, and as global supply chains became much larger that was no longer a viable way to make a living and so people migrated people migrated to the U.S. and what's really amazing in Quapa is people in the U.S. send money back home and there are all these houses big fancy houses people live in mostly really modest houses but there are these big fancy shells of houses built out of cement block that are multiple stories high and much bigger than the houses people are living in. But they have no windows and doors and they're just waiting for people to come home and put the windows and doors in and nobody knows when they're going to come home. But it's like this sort of um, this sort of promise that they're going to come home someday because they have this shell of a house with no windows or doors in it and they're still sending money home for it from the U.S. But it's so difficult to go back and forth that... It's really questionable. I don't think there was anybody living in one. It's almost like it was it was really um, I'd never seen anything like it before, and it may be common in parts of Mexico. Maybe some of you have seen it um, in your travels or some of you are from there and you know this, but it was something that just the houses were they were a little bit haunting um, as promises. Uh, and this was just this poster out in the world. A friend went out and was um, wheat pasting it. Um, So Uh, those, that project and that poster is what led to this work and to the video that it's referencing. Um, I was thinking my friend who has migrated, is in the U.S. now, migrated from Quapa when he was little. He is part of sort of a group of um, young people who came here undocumented who are artists who are looking at migration as a forced migration, or sort of migration where they had no choice as a kind of trauma, right? So they're thinking about what it meant to sort of move that way as children, to be apart from their parents for many years. Um, and in a way, I think for them that trauma is very directly tied to the realities of capitalism. So again, this sort of specter of capitalism raises um, raises its head and I was thinking a lot about what it means to be a child whose parents are away from them even if the reason is good or seems like they're actually doing it in order to take care of you and I started reading a lot about attachment theory for those of you who don't know it's just some theories about the ways that uh, our early relationships with our caregivers shape how we um, how we move in the world as adults and I got quite interested in Um, this idea of thinking about how what is best for like the parents of these children which was what was best for them was to be able to go to the US to earn money to send home and yet the children children now are dealing with the after effects of having been separated from their parents and not not being able to be with them so so again this idea of what's best for the child what's best for the parent um, and how that plays into things like attachment theory and how we move in the world as adults when those relationships haven't been ideal. And, and then the creeping question of like, is that really true? Like if, if the parents are well, are the children not also well? Um, if the children are well, are the parents not also well? Um, and that turned into these two videos, and this is actually a picture. It's, uh, you can see it's processed with some flower images and a little bit blown out on this screen, but. That's me when I was little, and that's my mom. I found a bunch of home movies that have been transferred to VHS that sort of started to creep into this work as well. So really thinking about generational wellness and what that means. And then I started to think about and ask myself why I was confining that to humans, um, and why that also wasn't a question to be asking about animals and how maybe, especially as we think about the climate changing, um, Maybe generations of animals have have complex um, relationships, or we have complex relationships to understanding what's good. And then I started to think about expanding that beyond sentient beings out to like rivers and mountains and oceans and all of these things. And this question of what's best, which seems like a really simple question, is actually really loaded, right? And and to know how to answer it is incredibly difficult. Like, what does it even mean? Like, I don't know what it means. I don't really. I don't really know ultimately how you answer a question of what's best in such a broad, in such a broad way. And I think that's why the questions have interested me so much. Um, I don't know how to answer them. And I started printing double-sided um, because I'm really interested in this idea that when you take a double-sided print like this, or like the one that I made um, about Quapa, um you take it home, you wanna put it up, you have to choose a side because you can't display both sides at the same time. So in a way, I'm problematizing it, right? Like you pick, where are your loyalties? But I don't really think that's how the world is, right? And so in a way, I'm just asking you to consider this um, because I'm considering it. Like where where do you come down when there are competing interests? I even think about this with my own my own body and my own health. like. I wanna eat fresh vegetables in January, but that's actually not realistic when you live in a place where you can't grow fresh vegetables in January. You are taxing the climate in order to do that. Um, so these questions, these choices that we're given, uh, I mean, it's how, it's how time moves. We make choices and then we live with the consequences of the choices. And I suppose the best that we can do is just to have some consciousness around around those choices um so that's kind of that's kind of my prompt in this case for you all and i will say that also this is mandy's lovely studio where i was painting and she took a picture this is this picture it's been really exciting for me i should say uh to have my body back in the process of making to actually be pulling ink rather than just sort of moving a mouse around which is what happens eventually with a lot of video and animation stuff, you end up just on the computer sort of moving your mouse around. Um, but to actually be pulling these paper prints was really pretty exciting for me. Um, and I think, I think that's mostly, that's mostly it. Um, I'm happy to answer questions now where I can answer them individually. And if not, just uh, thank you all again for, for being... Oh, yes, I should talk about all the other stuff. Um, <laughs> So uh, yeah, I'm teaching a flipbook workshop. So I, I am, a, or I have been for many years, a professor, an art professor. Um, I'm on leave right now. And I am teaching an animation, two-part animation workshop. We're gonna make flipbooks and then we're gonna digitally animate them using our phones. Um, and that will be w- this coming Wednesday and the following Wednesday. And there's a sign up uh, sheet here if you're interested in the evening. And also if anyone is interested in taking a print home and trying to figure out which side they want to display on their wall, um, I am happy to barter for them. Because again, i thinking about like, okay, this idea that maybe some of you have heard before that it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. So we're sort of gonna see, see what we can do with that. So if anyone wants to barter, I'm like, I'm up for it, I'll trade you a story, I'll trade you some jam, just make it something that's kind of an equal value, like don't give me your grandma's diamond ring or something. Um, that would be really awkward for me, even though it would be very generous of you. So if you if you want to uh, do a barter, I'm up for it. I also, um, I'm selling them for, you can sort of, I'm saying 25 to $75, you decide how much you wanna pay. So again, sort of thinking about these other ways of um, I mean, I think we inherently understand trade and reciprocity and barter as humans, right? But because the, the dominant system of capitalism is so dominant, we have to name them now and like make sign-up sheets on the stuff in order to do it. So there's a sign-up sheet. If you want to sign it for a time to barter or none of those times work, you can text me. My phone number's on there and um, we can set something else up. So yeah, if you want to barter, this is here. If you want to sign it for the flipbook workshop, um, this is here and... I think that's it. Is there anything else, AJ? Yeah, just that next Saturday will be Film Jam. Oh, is Saturday not March. Sunday? It's Saturday night. Saturday, not yeah. Sunday? Film the 14th. Film Jam? The 14th. Yeah. okay. Um, yeah, so come to back see for your to see some of my movies mm-hmm. and yeah. some other things would be great. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, please come back for that if you are around and interested. And, yeah, I think that's it. So thanks again. Thank you for coming.